Welcome, everyone. This is Sasha. Sasha talks on moving mountains. Today, we explore the world of therapy. What is it, and how can it improve the quality of our lives? The Fix Yourself Handbook, written by a veteran therapist, Foss Ruggiero, discusses the 52 internal processes that assist in creating healthy internal balances within oneself. Learn how to start living your best life today. To learn more, visit FossRuggiero.com. Welcome, Foss, to Moving Mountains. Sasha, thanks for inviting me. You happen to be the author of the Fix Yourself Handbook, and as a veteran therapist hosting at least 30 years of experience, what inspired you to finally write a book? You know, I've been counseling people all these years in a lot of different settings, Um, and as you do that, you begin to uh, find approaches that work and some that, you know, you're going to discard. And I started to realize that everything in life, everything we do, is based on processes. You know, we, we make a thousand decisions a day, and all of them have a little process associated with it. So I began to define those uh, processes. Uh, and when the time came, uh, I'm getting ready to kind of semi-retire from active counseling. I thought it was time. Let me put this in, into a text, and uh, let's get that out there and start moving this on a larger scale. In one of your speaking engagements, you called the book A Business Plan for Living, which is very practical. In terms of the therapy that you do for those that are tuning in right now, how would you define therapy? Because everyone has a different perception of the word. Yeah, you know, for me, uh, it it always... uh, goes back to the counselor, and I'm a very dynamic person, and, and, and I'm that way in counseling. Uh, so therapy for me is having a person come in, and the first thing I want to do is establish a rapport, and then the goal that we're going to have is to uncover as many of those little things that are affecting their lives as we can, uh, and then start and then begin to work with those. So for me, it's it, it's a, an all-encompassing plan that touches as many aspects of their life as life as I can, and arrange them in an order that makes sense for them based upon their needs and the way they'd like to do it. Because you also work with a wide range of demographics, from young children to adults. In the present times, are there certain concerns or challenges that are more relevant that you've been working with? Sure. You know, it, 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 it is actually one of the motivating uh, points of the book, which is that I see so many people going so fast and making quick, uh, really quick fix deci- uh, decisions uh, instead of taking some time, getting the information they need, and uh, and, and then implementing a plan. And the other part is that we tend not to be so willing to uh, do the work anymore. Uh, you know, when we start uh, thinking about a long-term plan, people look at that and say, well, gee, I don't want to be invested that long. I'd like to do something and then have it pay off right away. Those things concern me. We do live in a fast food, or some people call it a microwave society. People want the results immediately. When individuals implement a plan or implement a goal from the ones that you worked with, what is the average time frame for them to start yielding results? 
That's up to them. That's how, uh, you know, it depends on, on how willing they are to do the work. And, and I find a real correlation between people who embrace uh, this program we're going to put, that we're uh, implementing, and those that struggle with the work. Um, I, I like my people to enjoy the process of change. And those people, uh, within five, six months, we, they start to see some things that are really beginning to work for them. Uh, what they see the most is that they are capable of doing the work uh, and, and, and that the work pays off. Those that struggle with that, that, that look at this as a chore, maybe a year, Maybe never. It depends on whether they're willing just to embrace the fact that they're going to change and that it's going to take some time. With the ones that do embrace the change, are they able to maintain it on their own without the aid of a therapist? Yeah, you know, and that's, that's built into the program. The program uh, is written in hierarchical fashion. So when, when I'm getting to the point that I, I'm going to discharge them, they're ready for that, uh, and, they're, um, and they're ready to, to hold on to some of the gains. And, in fact, you know, interesting that you asked that question because uh, probably I'm thinking January, February of 2021, I'll start the sequel to the Fix Yourself Handbook. And that will be designed specifically for that. What I'm looking for there is kind of a, okay, now you made the changes. Here's how you're going to keep them. I think somewhere along the line, someone has to do, had to do a self-help book that had two components like that. You made the gains, and now we're going to give you something to keep them. You've shared that when people come to you for initial consultation or the initial meeting, how many meetings does it take for you to know that this individual will be able to produce results or they may be better off? when they really become ready, or it may be a personality mismatch? I usually know that right away. Um, I, by the second session, I probably have all that. And uh, as far as mismatch is concerned, I get a therapist who really is uh, engaged in what they're doing can correct a lot of those things. I rarely ever have someone come in the office and I say, I don't think I'm the right person for them. Uh, you know, I, I can make the transitions where I need to make them, and I can, I'll connect where I need to connect. Uh, so, you know, I'll see the people. What I'm really looking for in the first uh, couple sessions is are they willing to work and then how am I going to design some things that are going to uh, be okay for them to work with. In your book, The Fix Yourself Handbook, how long did it take you to write the book? The, I, I, it went into development about four years ago. Uh, it took a year or so to really research how I wanted to uh, design it and, 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 and present the whole program. And then it took me three years to write it, uh, back and forth, editing and then you, you know, getting to the copywriting stages and, and really presenting it like a, co a cohesive program. And then we published in December of uh, last year. In your articles that you shared, uh, your prior experience, you worked with those that have uh, recovered from domestic violence, addiction, different kinds of personality disorders. From your experience, would you be able to share some insights that you were able to extract from the domestic violence survivors? Because there are a lot of misconceptions out oh, there, there, and are. there are men and women that both get impacted. You know, that's a... a an involved process for me, I, I started, uh, really came on to the other side of that, the perpetrators of, of these actions, when I uh, was counseling in the jail. Uh, and then I, through the police, I was able to connect with the, um, with the victims. 
and I went out on domestic calls with some of them, and I had them, in, of course, the women in my office. And I think the most important thing that I'd like to do you know, when we talk about correcting those misnomers is that these are not women that are looking to be abused, or, or they're not unintelligent people who uh, go back to the same thing over and over again. What really happens is that when someone is victimized over time, there are actually changes in the brain. And the women then have, don't understand how to pull themselves away because that mechanism really has been taken away from them. So when, when I'm counseling them, that's one of the things I'm doing is letting them know that this is not all their fault. It's not their fault at all, in fact, but that anyone who, who uh, you know, the brain learns over time. That's what learning is. Uh, and if you learn how to be a victim, then the brain actually makes physical changes and, you, and we have to work to, to change those back, to rebuild some new ways of, of thinking. That's very interesting. So given what you shared, does the fear factor increase or decrease if they, their brain gets reconditioned? It, it initially will increase uh, because they, m- the brain changes in such a fashion that people firmly believe they can't pull away from this, or if they do, something bad is going to happen, and that's been drilled into them. Uh, so as we start to make the changes, and we're, gonna, we're trying to put some independent thought in there, the, the women uh, typically in the beginning will have uh, a lot of fear, will have apprehensions about what's going to happen. And what I really do is I, there's an old, it's the old uh, psychological uh, uh, mechanism we, we use called transference. I, I make it safe between they and myself. So they're seeing that uh, they can be in the presence of a male and not get hurt. And then, and then they begin to become stronger, and then, then, of course, we make that break, and they are able to go out and do that in other areas of their lives. Do you also have experience working with those that have multiple personality disorders? I do, yes. Is it genetic, or is it something environmental that an individual may take on as a defense mechanism and live through those personalities? Yeah, I, I don't see anything genetic. I've not seen much. There may be a predisposition, but there's, there's not enough research on that yet. What we normally see this is as, as a reaction to some form of trauma. It, it's it's a, a larger scale PTSD, if you will. Uh, and um, I, I'm treating one now that has nine different personalities. And, um, you know, it, it's trauma, it's abuse in a lot of cases. Um, it's being victimized over a long period of time. That's what I see the most when it comes to those personality disorders. Um, some personality disorders present, you know, through schizophrenia and those types of things, and that can be genetic. But your, your, your personality disorders in and of themselves, when we're, we're seeing multiple personality disorders, usually have an environmental component. Hypothetically, if you're in a session with an individual hosting the nine personalities, are you communicating with all nine of them, or is a particular one coming to that session? It's, it's whatever that person needs. It's always one, and, and often uh, it, they'll flip back and forth. I mean, I might have seen four or five in one session. Um, typically, it, it may be the host, the, the, the way the person is uh, n- uh, normally, or it may be one or two of the other uh, personalities. And typically, I, I, I should have said, the reason they do this often is because the person who was victimized or can't, just can't 
face that alone. So they create personalities to face it for them. And they live through those enough to deal with the circumstances, but never uh, to deal with them themselves. Just too much pain involved with that. That's understandable. So in that circumstance, what would be the goal? Would it be to minimize the number of personalities they host or to bring out a dominant one that they could live with day to day? My goal is to get back to uh, the person's own personality. Um, and, and, and this is a, a type of therapy that takes a long time. It's not something that happens in a year or, you know, this could go on five or six or seven years and, and sometimes even longer. Um, oftentimes medication is part of that. People have used shock therapies and all, hypnosis and all different kinds of things. But the goal is always to get them back, as close as you can back to their own personality. Thank you for sharing. And in the world of Sasha Talks, we also touch upon loving relationships. And one emotion, if it is considered an emotion, please correct me. How do you define jealousy? And do you have any clients that have to work through the presence of jealousy in their life that may be self-destructive? You know, jealousy is always a product of insecurity and fear. Um, person is not sure about themselves, maybe doesn't feel they measure up, feels that someone else might take their place, and then they become fearful. And oftentimes we see um, violence associated with that, but that's, you know, that in the extreme cases uh, where a person is now trying to defend them, uh, their turf, if you will. Um, so it's always about uh, fear and, and insecurity, and, and I always have those people in the practice. So I do a lot of marriage counseling, so that, always, that, that comes up often. On either side, tends to be more with men, but it's there with the women too. Is jealousy curable, or is it something that could be mitigated and contained? Yes, it is. The thing that we have to do is to take the focus off of what they're jealous of and get the person to become honest with themselves and look at themselves to understand where the insecurity is that's producing all this fear. Once they're willing to do that, and we make the environment safe enough for that to happen, then they start working on those things. They become stronger humans, and then jealousy is just not a necessary emotion anymore. In your book, The Fix Yourself Handbook, you also stress the theme of self-love and self-care. What have you learned about self-love in your own life? Components for me were, were to become very, very honest with myself. Uh, I think too often we're using defenses and so that we, we create uh, a person who we aren't really, just, it's not us. So uh, once I moved all those kind of things out many years ago and I said let me just be let me look at myself and, and in, in the book I call it being brutally honest with yourself not only did I go and find the things I didn't like I found a lot of things I do like um, but I got away from the creation uh, of a persona that was unnecessary then I was able to see who I really was and the first step for me was to like myself to say well you know I like all these things then the ability to love oneself and to be kind to oneself, then that develops from that point. For those out there seeking guidance, there are many life coaches out there and licensed professionals like yourself. What guidance would you have for those that are seeking counsel? Because we live in a bit in a, in a dangerous society where anyone can wake up and coin themselves and give themselves a title, and then they're going out and it's Spending counsel. How can an individual protect themselves and know that they're going to a proper, let's say, a therapist? 
Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because it's also one of those things that re- I wrestle with a lot. It's part of that quick society and get things fast. And those of us that do what we do for a living, we train long and we train hard and we are put in all different types of situations so that when the experience is necessary, we, have, we can call upon it. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of so-called life coaches are going through programs that are six months, nine months, maybe a year, uh, and coming out feeling as though they're qualified. Um, what I tell people to do is to check a pe- check their pedigree. If you know, did they graduate from a, an, an accredited uh, institution? Um, is there a long history of working with various types of people? Are they experts in the uh, concern that you have, whether it's fear or anger or whatever it may be? Um, this is not just about a coaching guidance thing. Sometimes we, you, we've got to go way inside and, and go way deep inside to understand what's motivating all these things. So, no, and, and, and the analogy I use is if you're going to go get surgery, would you want the surgeon to be someone who graduated from a school that taught him for one year? Uh, of course not. You want, you want all the medical knowledge because the human body is complex. Well, the human emotions and the human mind are complex. So those of us that go in there and help you rearrange things really better know what we're doing. And that takes time. Those skills take time to acquire. It's funny you use the surgeon's analogy because I often use it as well. Yes. You know, it, it hits home for people. Absolutely, because Google is everyone's friend or most people's friend, and people like to diagnose themselves. When, if an individual self-diagnoses themselves and they seek you out, do you correct them or do you tell them to stop, disengage, and focus with the present, with the sources in front of them? When they come in and they say, well, I think I have this based on all the symptoms, and I, what I do is I say, okay, uh, I'm not sure that's going to be true or not, but let's take some time and you and I will figure this thing out together as opposed to just doing Google. Google is kind of a template, if you will. It will give you some information, but your program, you know, you're, you're a person specific to yourself. Let's go and find out exactly what you have, not what some, you know, the, uh, the general concept, if you will. Let's see what's specific to you. And they're real, they're real good about going there once we do that. Cause, so what I did, I didn't knock them down completely. I just said, well, let's hold. Let's put that on hold, and we're going to get, we'll take that information and apply it specifically to you and come up with a whole uh, diagnosis. We also live in a very medicated society where people want to use medication as a Band-Aid than addressing the core issue. And there are some people who truly do need the medication out of the sample population that you've worked with. What percentage really needed to rely on medication? Oh, I would think it's under 10%. And it's interesting, when I started doing this in private practice uh, over 30 years ago, I probably had 5% that were on medicine. Today, I, I would think I have about 70% that are on medicine. And I don't move them in that direction unless I absolutely think they need that. Uh, my goal is to keep them med- uh, either medicine-free or as uh, with the uh, lowest dose as possible. But, you know, what often happens is before people get to a counselor's office or a psychologist's office, they get to their medical doctor. And the medical doctor may be wise enough to talk to them and talk them through some things or make the referral before they uh, prescribe the medicine. But nine out of ten times they walk out of the office with pills. Do you feel that in some cases the medication makes their therapy experience worse because it may end up contradicting two forms of alleged therapies? It happens. 
Um, if, if they get to the right medication at a very low dose, um, we can get things started. Sometimes they need that just to get things started, but usually once we get through all the difficult things, they can come off that medication. Uh, it, for some people, and for most people, the, the medications will metabolize over the years. They become inefficient. Now doctors are adding more medicines to them. And, I, and so now the next phase in this whole thing was people coming in the office with, and they're already on three or four medicines. Wow, that is quite a lot. It's scary. Mm -hmm. With the life expectancy increasing over a decade at a time, do you have senior citizens that visit you for therapy, and what type of concerns do they work through? Yeah, I do, and, and more so now than before. Um, what they're really working with, is it, most, most of them, is loneliness, loss. Um, you know, you're, about, you're, you're maybe in your 70s, you're approaching 80, you've maybe lost a spouse, some have lost children, uh, siblings, and they're finding themselves feeling very, very alone. The other thing I deal with, with them is life transitions. They're lo they're, they're, in addition to those losses, they're losing their home and their independence. Uh, they, may, they may go into a structured living program or at least into a seniors program, um, moving away from the area they lived in, so now you know, friends, geography, and family have been removed from the picture. So what I'm doing with them really is helping them reestablish a life, really recreate a life really is what we're doing. Let's put some things into your life that are going to be meaningful now. I find that having them volunteer uh, to help other people really uh, gives them a sense of purpose. Coming back to your book, what would be the top two or three qualities, the ideal candidate for them to read it and start working on themselves starting today? Qualities in the book, I, I, you know, I have what I call in the book uh, process bookends. Uh, and and in, the, in the initial part of the program, when you're just being introduced, I, I want them to try to work uh, to reduce their emotions and, and engage their brain, so to speak. It's a chapter I call I over E, intellect over emotion. And not that you, people can't express their emotions. What I ask them to do is try to put the emotions on the back burner a bit and get the, engage their minds into what's going on in their life so they can make some good decisions and, and their, their fact-finding makes some sense. Then the emotions can come back in later and they're based on factual information. They tend to be more appropriate and decisions tend to be appropriate as a result. It sounds very sensible and especially given the present environment, how can individuals who don't have the means of therapy or resources, are there a few steps that they could implement in their present life just to fare through the uncertainty and the unknown? Because there are many people going through career or job transitions, reorganizing their economic health. When I wrote the book, one of the components I put it, uh, the way it was designed, was to simulate a counseling experience. So if they're reading what I wrote, I would uh, talk about that intellect over emotion. I would talk about what we've been discussing, which is slow the pace down a little bit. And, and I, would, I would talk about fact-finding, uh, being very honest with yourself. Those, those, are the, those are the starting blocks because what, as I tell people, what we have to establish is where we start in the program. And you can't do that until you slow down a bit, until you get some facts and get, get honest with yourself. That's the key in any good therapy program is where do we start? And that's the one that takes, you know, the, where, where the counselor's got to have the experience because too, too often people are coming in midstream and, and, they, and they, they didn't get some of the early things that people need. So um, the first four chapters start that for them. 
speaking on ethical counseling, there are some people who may be under the impression that if they go to a therapist, the therapist will tell them what to do. Could you please clarify that a therapist's job isn't to make their life decisions on behalf of the client, but to inspire and make them aware of the tools so they could improve their lives? I always tell them that. The phrase I use is, uh, you're in, in business with me, so later on you can be out of business with me. Uh, so I, I'm teaching skills. I'm, help, I'm, co- I'm connecting the dots for them. Um, I'm a very directive person, but I don't tell them what to do. I, I want to teach them how to get there themselves. So, you know, I wrote the book in that fashion where a, a problem is presented. I give them all the information about the problem. At the end, I say, if you take all these steps... You'll, then you will learn how to do this yourself because that's the key. I, 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 I get a little concerned when I see people uh, who are, come to me and, they're, and they're, I'm their fourth or fifth or sixth counselor. Uh, obviously, then something's not working or they feel as though they have to have that, uh, that uh, therapeutic uh, guidance in their life all the time, and they don't. If, I always tell them, if I can make these decisions, you can make them too. I appreciate that you reinforce the accountability because I have met people just in passing sharing their therapy experiences and then it appears the therapist is telling them or living vicariously through the client when the client should be taking accountability and making decisions on their own. Again, and that's where we talk about therapists who ethically are doing the right thing. Uh, you know, the, the people come in, they're not our friends. We're, 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 not, we're not sharing those kinds of things with them. We're teaching them. We are, in essence, our teachers. And, and our goal is to teach them how to become independent and productive in their own lives. And finally, as we wrap things up, there was one emotion I thought to ask you about, anger. What, what resides behind anger? Is it sadness? Or it's some underlying things. issue. The, the most important uh, underlying issue for anger is fear. Uh, and, uh, you know, anger, uh, when we talk about jealousy, jealousy is in essence one type of anger. So you're going to find that fear and insecurity, those, those two factors, in almost all anger. Uh, but that, uh, sometimes it's, it's a reaction to something that someone did. Um, uh, I, I anger often, uh, you know, as, as I wrote in the book, anger is often used uh, uh, to get a person whatever they want. Um, so it becomes a tool that isn't a response to anything. It's a, it's a productive tool for people to get whatever they want in their lives, and they begin to rely on it. And since it's, uh, it's attached to the adrenaline and all those other hormones in our body, it becomes addictive. And then we use it routinely. And, and I, I, I have to actually have people that go through withdrawal from anger um, oh, really? I never heard of that. The, the brain chem- chemistry will actually change, and, and, they'll, and then when we, the, the anger starts to dissipate, they'll get depressed. Um, uh, they'll get angry again. You know, I, so I have to take them through the stages and help them understand that they were using this as a tool in their lives. Do they eventually outgrow the angry character in them? We don't outgrow it. We, we really have to work it through. We, that's where I go back and I find out where it's coming from. That's the, that's the most important thing with anger is to identify where it's coming from because if you don't, 
then you know, those triggers will continue to happen. And then we have to assume that the person's going to somehow deal with those. So you know, I go back and find what it is. Sometimes it's, you know, where a person is raised or it's a trauma in their lives or you know, bullying when they were young. Sometimes it's related to uh, what they're putting in their bodies, stimulants, things like that. So I go find out all the various components. And sometimes it's one or two. Sometimes it's multiple, and we have to take one out at a time. So does anger stem from a similar source, whether it's for a man or a woman, or is there one variable that's more prevalent in one gender than the other? It's, it's always fear-based. That's always the big one. Um, you know, no matter, I've never seen anger without fear. Uh, it, it, it presents differently, but it's interesting that you ask that. Um, the, the genders are becoming more divergent now than ever, so we're seeing a lot of the old characteristics that, uh, from the men. Now I'm starting to see them in the women. And, and if you think about it, it makes sense. Women's role has changed. They become more independent, more uh, open to the world, more cha- accepting more challenges as opposed to being you know, domestic engineers of, of the 50s and 60s. Uh, you know, so they're going to be exposed to a whole lot more, and, we, and now we see the same types of things in, in both, in both uh, genders. For those that were tuning in, we were discussing the book by Foss Ruggiero, The Fix Yourself Handbook. Foss, you are a wealth of knowledge. Please share with audiences how they can reach you. If you want to reach me, I have a website. It is FossRuggiero.com. That website is dedicated solely to the book. Everything you want to know about the book, chapter outlines, everything uh, is there, um, podcast, media appearances, everything you want to know will be there. And the book you can find on uh, Amazon and uh, Barnes and & Noble and in social media. I'm on most of them. Thank you very much, Foss, for joining us on Moving Mountain. Thank you very much for having me, Sasha.